Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Power in Weakness, with a message entitled, The New Creation. So turning your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I am, after all this time, still astounded every time I see a conversion to Christ. You know, that transformation is so radical, and it happens in some unexpected ways. Suddenly, not only do the things we love change radically, but so also are the things that we think and what we choose, and on on the basis of what we choose, all that's changed. The things I highly value have undergone a radical transformation. How I think about creation, How I think about humanity, that's changed. I think differently about my own humanity as well as I think differently about the humanity of others. Life takes upon itself a value I've never seen before. Suddenly, the unborn are important. So are children, as are the elderly, as are people with special needs, as well as the mentally ill. Our values change radically upon conversion. All this is called the new birth. You know, one of the key Bible passages that describe this radical change in the life of a man or woman is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, I've decided to dedicate an entire message on these vital Bible verses. See, in these two verses, there is a wealth of information as well as a description of the most fundamental transformation that any man, woman, boy, or girl can undergo. And our passage begins with the word, therefore. You know, Paul has just taught us that one died for all, that is the death of Jesus, and the impact of that death on all who believe means that we who believe have all died with Jesus, and consequently, Paul says, you know, we can't live for ourselves anymore. Suddenly, we live for Christ, for his glory, and we long to, in all ways, find our lives hidden in him. Therefore, from now on, says Paul, so from when on, he means from the moment of our conversion. At that point, when any man or woman bows his or her head, confesses their sins, confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and God, and in faith surrenders his or her life into the hands of Jesus, from that moment on, something happens. So what is it? Paul says, from that moment on, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment because as we're going to see, the meaning of that phrase, that we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, It's found in the later phrase that we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh. Now, here for just a moment, I'm going to take a bit of a rabbit trail, a detour, so bear with me. In the 20th century, there was a very famous German philosopher and theologian. His name was Rudolf Bultmann. He was a very liberal theologian, and he took this passage as the principal verse. Boltman claimed that this was Paul telling us that he had abandoned any concept of ever recovering the historical Jesus. And so Boltman, along with a whole awful lot of other liberal scholars, claimed that the historical record of the life of Jesus, that record that we find in you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they claimed it was horribly inaccurate. It's filled with superstition, they said. And Boltman, you see, was a child of the Enlightenment. And he had long ago abandoned the idea that miracles were possible. He thought miracles can't happen. 
And because miracles can't happen, all the miracle stories found in the Gospels, well, that's fiction, he said. And so a great many liberal theologians using this as their starting point, well, they argued that what was needed was a fresh approach to discovering the historical Jesus. I mean, after all, if if Jesus didn't do all those miracles, what did he do? And more, who was he? I mean, really? Well, said Boltman, When Paul said he no longer regarded Christ according to the flesh, he really meant, said Boltman, that he no longer regarded Christ as a historical figure. So Boltman taught that Paul had transformed the humble Jewish prophet named Jesus into a cosmic, universal Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, and, said Boltman, right here, Paul's admitting it to us. Ah, the wonder of liberal theology. Well, in order to respond... Well, I kind of feel like the mosquito in the nudist colony. I mean, where do you start? There's so much. You know, first of all, let's have a look at what Paul actually said about Jesus. You know, it's in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's speaking about divorce. Well, in order to settle the matter, in verse 12, Paul refers directly to the actual words of Jesus as he said it, the real historical man. Again, when wanting to correct the abuses in Corinth around their, you know, their practices at the Lord's table again, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24, he quotes the actual historical words of Jesus again. Or go forward to 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says that the heart of the gospel that he's been preaching is this. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised again. And so, says Paul, that's of first importance. And when he wants to prove it, that it's not a myth, but a real historical occurrence, he says, here I'm reading from Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 6, and that he, that is the risen Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that is Peter the apostle, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. See, that is everything that Paul teaches about Jesus is grounded in the historical Jesus. And if you doubt that, says Paul, then go ahead and interview the eyewitnesses. So that's Paul's gospel. It's rooted in the historical, not some mythical, spiritualized vision of a humble prophet transformed into a cosmic Christ. Paul never talked that language. Second, and this is also key, if you look carefully at what Paul says in verse 16 of our passage, See, he not only says he doesn't view Christ according to the flesh, he premises that discussion by saying he doesn't view anyone according to the flesh. So if Boltman wants to be consistent, he would have to say that Paul has transformed every human being into a cosmic personality. That's utter fantasy. Clearly, Boltman began with his presuppositions. He didn't believe that the Jesus of the gospel existed. And then he tried to make that work in the writings of Paul. And it's crazy, but that's what he did. And to this day, I notice that there are still people who ardently believe that the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of Paul are two different people. And so you hear people say, you know, I believe in Jesus and not in Paul. And I wish to respond by saying it's rubbish. Okay, that was the rabbit trail I warned you about. So then what does Paul mean when he says he never views Jesus according to the flesh? Well, the answer is found within the context of both Corinthian letters. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. And there Paul tells the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then later, when Paul defends his own ministry... 
You'll notice that some of the Corinthians looked down on Paul because, well, he was often hungry and then badly dressed and in poor finances, and he'd been brutally treated. And and there were people who viewed him as one of the scum of the earth. And because of that, many despised him. But if only they had thought about Jesus, how did he appear? He wasn't born in the halls of power. He He was born in a barn. He was the son of a carpenter. He wasn't a king. And at one point, Jesus told a would-be follower that he had no place to lay his head. He was like a homeless man. And then, of course, he was beaten and spit upon and became a man of sorrows and eventually nailed to a Roman cross. You know, Paul never mentions whether he had actually seen Jesus physically when he was younger, but it seems impossible to believe that he wouldn't have. But we do know that, that he would have, as a rising Pharisee, he would have despised Jesus for those very reasons. No doubt after the crucifixion of Jesus, I am sure that Paul would have quoted Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Indeed, Paul actually quotes that very passage in Galatians 3, verse 13, and he shows his remarkable turnaround on this matter. Yes, says Paul, Jesus was cursed on a tree as he bore our curse in his own body. But before his conversion, he would have regarded Jesus as a false teacher. And given that he was eventually crucified, he would have viewed him as someone who was cursed and abandoned by God. And then to add to this matter, Philippians 3, 4 to 6, Paul said that before his conversion, he was very different than the man he is now. He said, I used to have a great confidence in my flesh. Those were his words. He said he gloried in his circumcision. He gloried in his genealogical background. He gloried that he had become a well-respected Pharisee and that he had the zeal to persecute the followers of Jesus. And that, says Paul, is what I looked like when I expressed confidence in the flesh. For me, outward appearances were everything. And so from that vantage point, I viewed Jesus as a charlatan and a fake and a deceiver. I thought he should be stopped before this Jesus thing takes root. And so that's the reason, you know, when the frenzied crowd stoned Stephen to death in the streets of Jerusalem, there was Paul right there, Saul of Tarsus, looking and watching and holding the cloaks of the men who murdered a follower of Jesus, and he was nodding his approval. Keep doing it, lads. That's how Paul viewed Jesus. He viewed him according to the flesh. And he says, but now I don't do it anymore. I see how Jesus has transformed the way I look at him. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
one time, Paul said he only understood Jesus according to the flesh. And if you think about it, you'll still find that it's true today. Most people view Jesus according to the flesh. That doesn't mean everyone's as negative about Jesus as Paul was, although clearly some are. You know, the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, well, he said that he thought Jesus was a weak spider hanging on a cross, and he was encouraging the human race to love weakness and suffering rather than the law of evolution. Uh, But there are other according-to-the-flesh evaluations of Jesus that are much more positive, yet they're still according-to-the-flesh. You know, some people think of Jesus as the ultimate revolutionary, the guy who liberates the poor and the disadvantaged, and he gives us a new socialist agenda for the human race. That's who they think Jesus is. And still others see him as presenting us with a non-violence option. And there are those among rabbis today who portray Jesus as a Pharisee who simply came to bring reforms to the office of the Pharisees. And there's still others who think, you know, he's a prophet that should take his place among the prophets of the world, you know, including Moses and Muhammad and the Buhala and the Dalai Lama and on and on it goes. But says Paul, those who have been converted and have received the Holy Spirit, suddenly they have their eyes open and they now view him in a completely different way. I mean, no longer do they see him as a poor martyr who is unjustly tried and unjustly executed. No, no. They see him as the only begotten son of the living God and that his life is a life of fulfillment of the law of God and his death is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He satisfies the righteous demands of an altogether holy God and suddenly, the perspective is changed. See, let's go to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now stop there, in Christ. I I love those two little short words. Paul uses them over and over again. He means that we now belong to Christ, that is, that he has possessed us, he's made us his own. The phrase in Christ also means that we live under the influence of Christ's power now. It's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. It also means that we're united with Christ. And it's such a big concept that essentially it means that that we and Jesus now are inseparably bound to each other so that his future and our future is the same. He died and we die in him. He was raised, we will be raised in him. He rules over all things and we have been called to rule and reign alongside of him. Everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to us with the exception, of course, of his deity. In Christ also means that we're a part of God's people, the body of Christ. You know, I could go on and on, but but suffice it to say that, that the key to all of this is that the person who is in Christ is the person who has been converted. It's the person who has abandoned his or her former way of life. They had their sins forgiven. They've been granted access to the Father. They've been given assurance that we are eternally with our Lord Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a Christian. They're born again, born of the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be in Christ. Now then, if anyone is in Christ, Paul then says, I know for certain that that man or woman has three things that are definitely true of him or her. So here are the three things. Number one, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Stop for a moment. Think about creation. You know, when I talk about creation, I'm talking about the physical universe. It's the story of Genesis. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Or as John says, he made everything that has been made. All made, all created things are made by God, who is the uncreated creator. Well, now, 
We human beings are a part of the creation. You know that. In fact, Genesis tells us we're the crown of God's creation. We're uniquely created in the image of God. But as we know, our first parents fell from grace. That led to this mutinous rebellion against our creator and consequently human beings who were originally designed never to die. We now find ourselves subject to death. And Romans 8 tells us that all creation is groaning. And then Paul says, we also groan. That's that's the reality of our state now. We're openly hostile to God now. And we're still subject to disease and hatred and violence. We're subject to broken relationships. And all of our experiences, we hear the silence of God. That's what's happened to this old creation. But if anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Here's the wonder of it all. The Bible tells us that the day is coming. Well, let me read it. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. That is, not only are we dying, that is, we human beings, we're dying, but furthermore, the day will come when there is a massive roar, and the entire created order will end up in ashes. But then a new creation one which will never groan, will rise like a phoenix from those ashes. And that's what a new creation is. It means the final order in creation, the end of the story, when everything is made new. So here's the marvelous secret. If anyone is in Christ right now, yeah, right now, even while we're still living in the old creation, right now, we're already participating in the new creation. Resurrection life, eternal life has been infused into us right now. Something of the age to come now lives in us, and that thing is the very life of Jesus himself, joined with Christ in an ever-living, never-dying, filled with joy life. We are right now in new creation. So number two, if anyone is in Christ, says Paul, the old has passed away. I guess in one sense we might say second point sounds remarkably like the first one. Of course, that's true. Uh, but let me read to you from Romans 6, 9 to 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves, watch this, dead to sin, and of course alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I think that's it. Not only are we a part of the eternal world to come, but right now, on the basis of that, we must consider ourselves dead to sin, dead to to the old creation. Want to know what that means practically? Here it is. Everyone who's truly saved finds sin unacceptable. Yeah, it's true that we still struggle with sin in our flesh. Until the new creation comes, we will continue to do that. But we will never be comfortable with sin. We're not prepared to live in sin. It's because the old has passed away. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's a new attitude towards sin. It also has a new heart that loves God, just can't get along with that so that we're prepared to wage war against sin with every vestige within us. See, do you know, whenever I meet someone who claims to be a Christian but treats sin in a cavalier fashion, I know they still view Jesus from the vantage point of the flesh. Whenever I hear someone say about their old self, well, it's no big deal. I mean, after all, everyone has their own sins too. Mine are no better or worse than anyone else, and I'm sure God's going to overlook all of that and forgive it. I mean, whenever that's said, we portray that the old hasn't passed away. 
Indeed, the old is still ruling the day. But the believer, when confronted with his or her own sin, is quick to bend the knee and repent. That's because we can't live with the old anymore. So when anyone is in Christ, first of all, we're a new creation. Second, the old is gone. And that leads us to point number three. The new has now come. So let me explain that in terms of you know, my own experience. I was raised in a Christian home, but I wasn't born again until I was 18. And here were some of the things I immediately noticed upon my conversion. I got frantically hungry. I was like a starved man for the scripture. And I started to read and to pray. And I remember one day, I was still 18, I was in my parents' basement and I was struggling with whether or not I'd been genuinely born again. I was struggling with my own sin. It bothered me. And then with my Bible in hand, not knowing where to read, but being hungry for it, I came upon Romans 8:55 and following. You know, it's the passage that asks the question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? I read it. And then I read it again. I remember where I was and something just clunked in my heart. Nothing can separate me from Jesus who is not going to allow anything to separate me. And then as a very young man and as a very young Christian, that truth just just seized me. Christ will hold me fast. I'm not going to worry again about whether I'm forgiven because Christ has just told me in his word he won't let go of me. He's more determined to hold me than I am determined to be held. Now, see, that's one example of the new coming. But that very thing, that at one time I wasn't interested in the word of God, and it's now the most precious document that I can look at. It's a part of the new creation. It says everything has become new. I can't look at Christ the same way anymore. I don't look at my fellow man the same way anymore. I don't look at myself the same way. Everything has been made new. It's what it means to be born again. John, a critical but important question. How can someone be born again? Yeah, from our perspective, we simply do this. Believe the gospel. Christ came, died for your sins, and took upon himself the penalty for your sin. Believe that. Secondly, repent of your sin, and then entrust your life into the hands of Christ. Say to to Jesus, here's my life, take it, it's yours, and then believe in him for the rest of your life. I mean, these are the things that we must do. Commit to Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us next week as we conclude our series, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. Would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada? Your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.